You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by SolarAy Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and thanks for joining Energy Insiders podcast, our weekly podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK analyst. David, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Giles. Good, and I trust all our listeners are also well, and I, I trust our special guest today also will. Yes, look, our special guest is Bruce Godfrey. Um, Bruce, you're the um, chair of the um, Australian Council of Learning Academies report into battery storage. Um, you're also chair of the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering and CEO of Australian Scientific Instruments. That's an awful lot of acronyms to keep up with. Yeah, a lot of acronyms, Giles. Look, thanks for joining us, Bruce. Um, really important report, a really interesting report, an important report that you released last week on energy storage, and we will get to that. Um, David, I just want to get in, do some of the news of the week first. Um, now, did you say you had an important announcement or observation to make about cows? Well, it's not that new, but I heard it again on Countrywide. I grew up in the country, and so cows and climate change have always interested me. And uh, it's fantastic to think that uh, a Canadian-Australian research assessment onto red algae uh, seems to see that feeding that in 2% concentrations can pretty much get rid of uh, uh, the contribution that cows make to global warming via methane emissions uh, and also improve the productivity of cows. So... Uh, that may be well be the most important contribution Australia ever makes to climate change. Look, let's go on to some of the other news that we've seen of the week. Um, the Queensland election, I think, um, looks like it's going to be, well, almost certainly a, um, a win for the Labor state government. Um, I guess that means a couple of things, probably good news for the renewable energy industry and um, the end of this idea, one hopes, of this uh, coal-fired generator up in North Queensland. Yes, and also hopefully a, a fatal roadblock in the way of the Adani coal mine. Look, a lot of people will say, and a lot of the newspaper commentary has said that this is doesn't uh, this was fought on state issues and not federal issues. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe I'm biased, but I think that renewable energy and coal uh, was very much one of the main issues of the campaign. It was uh, something that the Labor Premier changed course on slightly by finding a way to wriggle out of the Adani commitment, which maybe that carried the crucial votes in the southeast of the state. Uh, and so I guess it also shows the election odds uh, were quite good predictions of this time, but that should be a worry for in Victoria and South Australia where the election betting odds are against the Labor government. Indeed, but look, it certainly does mean that at least one of the main modelling assumptions in the National Energy Guarantee is wrong. Um, we saw the modelling coming out late last week. We saw COAG agreeing to do more work on the National Energy Guarantee, and I'm sure, David, you agree that a lot more work has to be done. One of the extraordinary pieces of the modelling was this assumption that there would be no, zero, absolutely zero, nothing at all of large-scale solar happening over the next decade. Now, I guess the re-election of the Labor government will prove that to be false straight off, but there's clearly a lot of work to be done, isn't there? Look, Giles, I, I, I've said before, and I'll say it again, I don't take any notice whatsoever of that sort of modelling. I don't think that modelling influences decisions. It's only done for political purposes. 
um, and, and I think it's completely irrelevant myself and I think it's all of this modelling is, is just uh, very suspect. What happens in the real world is entrepreneurs, if they're given half a chance, go out there and see if they can make some money, decide how much risk they want to take on building, say, a new solar plant, given that it's uh, LCOE is going to be less than the current electricity price. If they can talk people into taking that risk, they'll build the thing. Well, look, that's right. But I guess the only thing we actually know about the um, National Energy Guarantee is the modelling. It's the thing that's actually being used to justify the whole... Um the whole exercise, and um, it wasn't very pretty reading. But look, I'm, I, I do take what you say um, about that. Um, one final thing before we get over to Bruce and the storage thing, the purchase of Loyang B um, by Alinta, $1.2 billion. Um, it seemed to me that they paid an awful lot more than what um, per megawatt than... Um, no, that's a, wrong. You, that's you've wrong? Done, you've, you've done your sums wrong. I mean, Loyang A, uh, purchased in 2012 by AGL, was about 3.1 billion for 2.2 gigawatts, 2,200 megawatts, which works to 1.4 million dollars a megawatt. Um, if you work the Loyang B numbers through, it comes to 1.2 million dollars a megawatt, despite the fact that electricity prices in Victoria are way higher. Now, I think these two power stations are very comparable, uh, given that they're both using the same coal mine. It's true that Loyang A is bigger and owns the coal mine, and that might increase its value, but I read that whole thing as saying that, in fact, the value of coal-fired power generation in Victoria, despite the higher prices, has actually gone down because people are more conservative in their assumptions about carbon and renewables now, or, or optimistic about the amount of renewables than they were before. Okay, well, interesting, and I stand corrected. Um, let's bring in Bruce now, because the whole idea about coal, the whole idea about the National Energy Guarantee and the way that Queensland is heading with 50% renewables means that we've got to think about um, storage. And Bruce, um, you guys did do this um, bit, very detailed report on energy storage and the options, and it was look, it had a whole bunch of layers, um, really interesting about the opportunities and some of the issues about sort of social acceptance and recycling. Um, let's start with some of the bigger conclusions about how much storage we need, and I think this is probably important in the current debate. Um, it was actually surprisingly little, at least over the short to medium term. Giles, yes, you're correct. Um, but I, I'm very much in David's camp on modelling. Uh, you know, modelling is done to, in my view, to test plausibility. And that's exactly what we used uh, the modelling for, where we looked at a, a low, uh, a medium and a, and a high, high scenario for renewables penetration, particularly variable renewables, which is wind and solar. And um, you know, we just wanted to understand sort of the order of magnitudes for uh, is, is under any of those uh, scenarios, are we going to have to deal with huge amounts of storage or reasonable amounts of storage? And the answer came back, it looks around reasonable amounts of storage. And we also looked at it from the dimensions of uh, energy security uh, and energy reliability or, or adequacy. And uh, you know, in, in the security terms, what we're at, what you're really looking at is um, a, quite a lot of gigawatts, but not very many, not much storage per se. So not many gigawatt hours. Whereas reliability, you're looking at it the other way around, uh, because you're looking to have hours of storage to be able to tide you through or tide the the system through the delivery over a long period of time or hours of storage. And uh, yeah, it, it came out as. Um, Look, it's, re it's quite plausible that a system with 50% um, 
uh, or up to 50% uh, re variable renewables is uh, appears to be perfectly technically doable. Economically, um, it seems to be in a, a reasonable ballpark. Once you start to go much beyond 50%, though, then the storage requirement, uh, particularly for reliability, starts to climb pretty dramatically. But you know, we're not alone in showing that sort of uh, out, uh, outcome. Yeah, well, that's exactly where South Australia um, finds itself in um, right at the moment. They're pretty much at 50% wind and solar um, and, um, and looking to go forward. And it's interesting to see a lot of the new projects are actually bringing storage with them. Um, your modelling shows that's exactly what's needed. Yes, it, it is. And, uh, and I think the, the, to see these, the increasing number of uh, projects, large-scale projects that are bringing storage with them, be they solar particularly, uh, wind will increasingly, but we also should remember that the behind the meters penetration of, of storage is going to, in my view, uh, and in fact in the report's view, um, pretty dramatically start to climb. It, we're only at the beginning of that, um, of that next stage of um, complementing rooftop PV with uh, on-site storage as well, whether or not it's in the, the home or in a business. And as we do more of that, um, then you know, that's also adding a degree of, uh, of security and reliability into the system, complemented by uh, companies that are out there looking how do they do, how do they do microgrids, how do you do control, how do you, uh, how do, you do all of those sorts of things, whether or not they're small companies, Australian companies like RepositPower and others, or they're the overseas companies that um, are bringing, coming into Australia to offer that sort of aggregation type service. And it's interesting though um, about that behind the meter battery storage, um, and you talk about the households and, and, and um, how do you, I guess the question is, how do you actually harness all of that to bring it together? Um, a combination of um, some hardware and a lot of software, uh, together with as uh, talking to some colleagues, uh, we're going to need standards uh, that people can rely on, that the developers can rely on, uh, so that there's common, uh, common standards. Because this is all going to have to link into an established network. Um, I don't think anybody's uh, really predicting that uh, all consumers of electricity are suddenly going to go, or even over time, are going to go off-grid. You know, the concept of uh, a, a connected electricity world complemented by a, a digital world for the control systems in that uh, is really the way forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you talked also uh, about some of the issues though um, with the households, um, talking about their lack of information about it and talking about some of the wariness um, they have towards the technology. Yes, the, the um, work that we did, uh, really the sort of social research side of it, um, one of the good things about uh, the ACOLA is that it brings together the four learned academies across um, science, uh, technology and engineering, social sciences and humanities. So you know, one of the pieces of work we did uh, was to do some both interviews, uh, some focus group work, uh, and uh, a survey. And what that all showed was that um, consumers, particularly at the, sort of, at the household level, are still very um, data poor, knowledge poor on energy storage. They understand the concept, 
if they're connected at all, it usually is with a sort of a Tesla battery, uh, the called Tesla effect. Um, things like pumped hydro storage, they're not very familiar with at all, so that large-scale storage aspect. But um, so they have concerns, they'd like more knowledge, they're trying to figure out who should they get that knowledge from, whom, whom should they trust. Uh, if, uh, when they get that trust, uh, they're then looking to start to say, all right, well, what are the economics of it? Um, does it make sense for me to put it in? And we're already starting to see the classic technology take-up curve where the early adopters are in now. So we're already starting to see you know, a few thousand home energy storage systems going in uh, in 2016. We'll see uh, a lot more going in this year and then it will gradually climb as we get into the majority, just like photovoltaics has done. Uh, we've already got 1.8 million rooftops with photovoltaics on top. Uh, gradually, we'll see a lot more um, connected energy storage to those systems. Then what about, let's go back to the large-scale um, storage. Um, you talk about the merits of both battery storage and also pumped hydro. Um, clearly, they have two distinct but potentially overlapping properties, um, both in the speed at which they respond and the services they actually provide to the grid. Um, how are we going to discover what they can actually do um, better, respectfully, and, and, and merge them together? Well, pumped hydro, we already know a lot about. Uh, we've got a couple of pumped hydro systems in Australia, and of course there's a lot more of them around the world. So pumped hydro is the established um, large-scale energy storage technology. Um, of course, we've got Snowy 2.0 as a potential... Uh, next big pumped hydro storage system in Australia and then there's been reports such as uh, Andrew Blakers from uh, ANU has put out looking at multiple smaller uh, pumped hydro systems around uh, Australia to complement um, the variable renewable energy systems that are being put in. Uh, so we know a lot about pumped hydro. In terms of large-scale battery storage, uh, there's not so many systems anywhere in the world uh, we, by the end of this week, we should have, have, have our first one operating here in Australia, which is the 100 megawatt, 129 megawatt hour system in South Australia. And there's certainly uh, plenty of forecasts and plans uh, by companies to do more of them. So we're going in the large scale systems, we will understand large scale batteries and how they operate and how they operate in Australia, where we have uh, typically much higher temperatures. Uh, ambient temperatures uh, to have to deal with. Um, we're now going to get experiential learning uh, through essentially doing. And uh, when you get into such big systems, that's about the only way you can do it. Somebody's got to take the risk uh, to come in and put those systems in. And whether or not that's a shared public-private risk or a full private risk, uh, I think we're just going to see more and more of those systems coming in. Indeed. Um, and it's, look, it's pretty interesting. Um, this week, actually, we're going to see the, um, the formal commencement of the Tesla big battery in South Australia, the world's biggest lithium-ion battery. And it's been interesting seeing some tests happening over the weekend. And it's really quite got a lot of people talking, a lot of people very excited because we haven't seen anything like this um, in the Australian grid um, up until now. Um, and as you say, um, it's very much about sort of testing it and seeing how it works. And I was talking to the owners of the Lincoln Gap Wind Farm who are also talking about a battery storage thing and said, well, we're actually going to start small because we understand the concept, but actually putting it in, we still need to actually see how it actually does operate on the grid. 
Absolutely. There's going to be a need for more and more of this. And I, I think, as David said before, uh, entrepreneurial um, owners of wind farms, of uh, more and more big PV farms, um, they're going to take that opportunity to firm up their supply. Um, you know, are they going to have to put in hundreds of megawatts and hundreds of megawatt hours per system? No, they're not. We're going to, um, we're going to have lots of distributed uh, large-scale energy storage, medium-scale and small-scale as it is behind the meter. Uh, and that's just how the networks are evolving now. Uh, the, our, our networks are now uh, got a lot of distributed uh, generation in them of all scales and we're going to see more and more of that and to and to be able to provide the security and the reliability uh, that we are all used to and in fact our uh, that we actually need as uh, as consumers um, storage is going to be an important part of that future indeed and can we just maybe just throw, throw to the uh, the longer duration storage because this is another issue that you raise as well because um, we talk about battery storage we talk about pumped hydro this sort of acts over seconds and minutes and hours and things like that um, i guess the good old question is well what happens when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine for weeks on time now that possibly is a bigger um, challenge for european countries and other ones that don't have a lot of sun but I guess we're still going to need some sort in, 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 in Australia. And we do hear things about the hydrogen economy and this idea of having these sort of massive solar arrays or wind arrays and sort of storing longer term with hydrogen or ammonia or whatever that the, the, the best carriage facility that they can find. Um, what did you find about that? What we found is that those sorts of longer term storage, um, the concept of uh, turning uh, the sun and the wind into a fuel, uh, a renewable fuel, is certainly um, prospective. Uh, I wouldn't say it's yet economically viable, but it's certainly highly prospective. It may indeed be uh, most prospective uh, for exports. Um, we already know that countries like uh, Japan and Korea would very much like to be able to um, access renewable hydrogen and bring it into their in a, into their countries because they don't have very much um, uh, indigenous energy resources. And so we need to um, sort of look at those opportunities. Um, equally for um, that long-term storage, as you say, what's going to be the solution for ensuring 24 seven, 365 at, you know, four or five or six nines reliability. Um, we, the system, you know, we, we're an interconnected uh, grid. Uh, admittedly, Australia's grids are not as strong uh, as in, in terms of um, interconnectedness and uh, we, we have a very long, skinny, sparse grids. But I think what we're going to see is that our grids will get stronger. There'll be investment in transmission. We'll, we will be... A, um, more interconnected across state boundaries. So the concept of both geographic spread, um, distributed energy storage, uh, and you know, let's face it, we're still going to have rotating machinery in the form of gas turbines uh, and in Australia, um, it's going to take a long time for coal plants to, uh, to finally um, be out of our system. And uh, so we are going to have this increasing mix and that's part of the the challenge and the opportunity is to make that transition from what we've been so used to in the past through to that new 
that new world where we've got lots of uh, lots of distributed generation, uh, distributed storage, uh, working in with an interconnected and a intelligent or smart grid, if you want to think of it in that that language. What you seem to be describing then is a world where fossil fuels play a dramatically reduced role, um, almost indistinguishable um, if you go over time, because what you're talking about here is basically the ability to replace coal and gas generation within our own grid. You're talking about the ability to use um, solar and wind fuels to replace our LNG exports um, to other countries. And I think the report also touches on, but doesn't go into um, into deeply, um, electric vehicles, which presumably can also be sourced from um, wind and, and solar fuels. So um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of sort of painting the future that everyone, I think, aspires to, um, at least in terms of environmental outcomes and, um, and probably um, quite frankly, economic outcomes as well. Look, it could well be. Uh, I think the um, I think we have to acknowledge that we the our electricity systems, indeed our energy systems, uh, are in a uh, are in transition. Now, is that transition going to happen in the next few years, or is it going to take many tens of years? My view is it will take many tens of years uh, before we're through that transition and. Um, we perhaps might get there faster in a country like Australia and other similar countries around the world than, than many other countries. But um, we're not alone in this in Australia. We, uh, we have many countries around the world that are on this transition now, be they, uh, be they the, the so-called developed West or the emerging economies um, such as China. Um, we, you know, this is this is all moving in that direction. Can we predict what will be the mix of energy technologies that are supplying us in the future? No, we can't. Mm. Uh, we can be pretty certain about uh, that we'll have um, a lot of them, but uh, will they be exactly as we know them now? Um, I think the one thing, as you said there a moment ago, is that it's that low emissions future uh, which we are really transitioning to, and that's very different from our past. David, can I give you an opportunity to come in here? I've been sort of thinking that you, we, we might have lost you, but um, we've had a few um, technical issues, which I will apologise to listeners today. Um, if there's been some delays or difference in sound, um, we've been having a few problems. But, um, David, you've been sitting there quietly um, the normal, and um, I don't know whether there's technical issues or whatever, but um, can I give you the opportunity to throw a question to, um, to Bruce if you have one? Well, well, I've been listening. Thanks, Giles. I've been listening to, to Bruce, and I, I must say this is very familiar territory, I guess, to most of our listeners. We've... we've um, we all know that storage has come in, I think, but I, I would say there's, part, there's lots of things to say. The first thing I'd say is that uh, there's a lack of realisation uh, from the um, system about how to deal with dispatchable renewables. You can't, on the one hand, say that you don't need very much, and on the other hand, say that we're going to have lots of it uh, in a market, because the price, if you don't need very much, they won't be, get the price signal. So right now, for instance, getting a pumped hydro plant built uh, by by anyone other than the federal government, which wants to crowd everyone else out with Snowy 2. You've got ARENA funding um, uh, Tassie Hydro. The whole market is completely screwed around this, and part of that goes back to the fact that the AEMC uh, and the Energy Reliability Board and the AMO won't get on with this bloody national plan, the transmission plan, won't uh, commit to the future that we all know is coming. As far as behind the metre battery storage, uh, the fact is battery prices haven't come down a cent this year, and battery availability is actually very constrained at the moment. 
and people would be jumping at the batteries. We know there's tons of interest in it, but they can't actually get the supply. And that's because the big battery factories haven't been built yet. And so the costs aren't coming down at the rate we would like them to. So it's as much a market issue again as it is uh, an uncertainty issue. So I think all of this stuff is wonderful, but uh, we need uh, more central planning, quite frankly, to make it all happen in a more uh, useful way. David, I, mm. I certainly agree with you on the, um, you know, the, the, the battery, big battery factories haven't been built yet. Uh, and, and those that have been built are pretty much flat out. Uh, we, I think we should also remember that the big battery factories initially were built to, for electric vehicles. And, and, uh, and they're likely to stay on electric vehicles because the demand for electric vehicles is very clearly growing with global policy incentives and it's chewing up all of the uh, batteries that can be made as fast as they can be made. Yeah, I agree entirely. But, you know, that said, I remember back to a number of years ago uh, when I was, um, you know, my background originally is in, is in solar photovoltaics. And, uh, you know, I, I was doing that back in the, um, in the 80s when it wasn't very fashionable, but still nonetheless very important for remote telecommunications and other, other applications. And, and then PV took off and, uh, you know, there was this nice curve coming down and then there was a big shortage of silicon and the silicon manufacturers had to ramp up and then they ramped up and then uh, it all got back on track again. And Absolutely. I, I think we'll see exactly that in the energy storage side. As the demand, the demand is there, the, the manufacturers, the suppliers will respond. We're seeing new, tech, new energy storage technologies, particularly battery technologies, will gradually enter the market, whether or not it's vanadium redox or it's zinc bromine flow batteries or it's sodium, you know, the next generations of lithium and, uh, and sodium batteries, such as you know, people like Maria Skoulis-Kazakis are working uh, in vanadium or Maria Forsyth. Uh, in one of my expert working group members. Um, so, you know, we, we are just going to see more and more of this and gradually the market will supply itself. No, I, I think that's right. I, I think behind the meter will eventually take care of itself and uh, uh, while software to make it uh, contribute to the grid is useful, the very fact that you take uh, um, the demand will be kind of uh, flatter as a result of behind the meter storage uh, will itself take care of some of the um, uh, volatility out of, out of the market. I agree with you as well that uh, we just don't need that much um, dispatchable generation in front of the meter at the moment uh, in the form of uh, renewable. I mean, we need it for renewable purposes and carbon emission purposes, but existing coal and gas already copes with the extremely flexible levels of demand. Mm. One of the things that people don't understand is just in Australia how, how much demand moves on average by about 35% every single day. Yes. Uh, and an existing coal-fired system largely copes with that. Um, and it can cope with a lot more. Uh, but what we are going to increasingly need is fast response. Uh, and uh, dispatchable engines that can ramp up and down increasingly more quickly with low, at lower costs. And what we already find is that the gas generation in Australia is not as efficient as we would like at ramping up and it's not as low cost as we would like at ramping up and down. 
What we've yet to discover is whether, for instance, a pumped hydro station can make any money uh, on a merchant basis, and the arithmetic is not particularly supportive mm. right at this very second, simply because in most markets the, the coal can, can do the job. And, and this is where we, we, we need the market design to, to get in, in, in front of the actual market price. We do need to get some pumped hydro or some concentrating solar uh, out there for the, for the um, um, uh, reliability side of things. Uh, but we're not going to get it with the current market parameters. Mm. Yes. Indeed, indeed. Look, a lot to discuss there. Look, guys, um, I've really enjoyed this conversation, um, but we do have to call an end to it there because um, we do have, um, I think we've each got um, uh, appointments elsewhere, so apologise to listeners as you're listening sort of at the comfort of your home or in the car or wherever. Um, don't realise that. Um, um, anyway, um, so look, Bruce, thank you very much for joining us um, this week. You're very welcome, Giles. Thank you for the opportunity. And David, look, um, thanks for joining um, uh, Energy Insiders once again. Uh, a few things to look at for next week, but um, a solar conference in particular and um, probably some yet more politics. Well, we didn't talk about the Finkel uh, outcomes uh, yet, uh, and we haven't yet seen the National Transmission re- uh, Planning Report. Uh, we've got the large-scale conference, uh, solar conference this week, which is great, but I suspect most of the solar developers won't be there because they're all busy, busy getting ready to commission their new plants. Uh, as much as the Queensland election so, and as much as the battery starting up in South Australia, I th- I'd like to congratulate GenX for getting their Kidston solar plant energised already. That's at a fantastically fast pace uh, from when they started, and it's an example of how quickly you can build these uh, PV plants in particular uh, and take advantage of even short-term uh, windows of opportunity in the market. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how quickly they can actually be um, put into the grid because energising is one thing, connecting into the grid is another and I think we've seen with some of the other plants over there there's been big delays up there because of issues with ergon staffing and um, what have you. But anyway, we will see how we go with that. Look, um, listeners, thank you very much once again. Thank you very much for our uh, sponsors, Solaray Energy and What Watchers. If you do enjoy our podcast or got any other comments, please do let us know. Please leave a review on iTunes and thank you very much for listening and thank... Um, Apologies again if there have been any technical issues this week. Bye-bye. Energy Insiders was brought to you by SolarRay Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatchers.com.au and take control of your energy use.